0: Good evening. This is our second week um, on the Doctrine of God in uh, the School of Theology. It's a joy to be with you. Let's open up in prayer. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks uh, for the mercies that you give us in Christ, uh, that you reveal yourself in him to us, that we who have been in darkness have seen a great light. And so we have seen the likeness of the Father, Uh, we have known him in our lives as Savior And indeed, O Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather around your word and we can think your thoughts after you, uh, get to know you better, and so serve you uh, more faithfully. We ask that you would aid us tonight as we think about profound things. We're on holy ground. And we ask that you would forgive us of all of our sins in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at the doctrine of God, but we're doing that within the context of the whole of Christian theology. So let me uh, quickly... Uh, Remind us of the ground that we're on. Um, We are looking at the doctrine of God within the wider context of all that the Bible teaches. I got an email uh, early this morning from uh, Ligonier Ministries Reformation Bible College. And they said um, that they're being asked, I think by the website people uh, or their uh, digital publishers, for a kind of action statement about what really is at the heart of each teacher is doing, not in different classes, but kind of the heartbeat of what they do. And I sat there on the plane thinking, how do I, how do I summarize in a sentence fragment, you know, for, for the internet, what, what it is that, that we try to do in theology. And so I, I ended up saying that, um, let's see if I can reconstruct it. With a pastor's heart, we look at biblical words and themes and thoughts. And then we try to synthesize them from all over the Scripture um, that we might understand the whole as has been taught in the historic Christian creeds and Reformed confessions. Uh, The reason I I wrote a sentence like that, because that really describes the enterprise of Christian theology. Um, We're not looking at one particular book. We're not looking at... um, one word in the Bible, or one theme in the Bible, or just one uh, piece of thought, that is, the line of logic that Paul is using in Romans chapter 6, for example. But we're looking at all of those things, and then we're trying to see how they fit together uh, and synthesize the whole. So that's what we're doing in Christian theology, because God, in his word, from one end to the other, speaks to us about profound topics uh, and uh, we want to know his one divine mind about these things, and we have sixty six books here that give us bits and pieces of that, but it has to be woven together. We have some uh, uh, some gals here that are weaving right now. What kind of weave is that, uh, Jim? Crochet. That's crochet. Co- see, we've got two different kinds of weaving going on right here. And so the question is, how can we put together all these different pieces that God has given us in His Word? You might think of it like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And, uh, you've got all these pieces. Let's say you're trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together without the picture. Have y'all ever done that? Every once in a while we'll do that as a family. And that, that, that's actually hard work. You should get overtime for that. That's really not pleasure. You know, it's, it's work. And, and that's what we're doing with the Word of God in all its different levels and aspects. So it's not somebody standing up and... Welcome. Hi there. Hey, good to see you. To see you. Uh, it's not somebody standing up and kind of pontificating about some idea that came into their mind. It, uh, Christian theology is also not starting with some kind of grand philosophical system and working out the implications for God and man. And telling us how it just has to be. Um, God reveals Himself in His in His Word, in His Son, and we take all the different bits and pieces, all the different snapshots, all the different key words, all the different uh, themes, all the different thoughts or lines of logic, and we seek to see how they all fit together. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, that we get everything right the first time we try. We keep trying and trying. We keep going back again to try to put these things together. Uh, we are looking at just one section of the board, as it were, but we're standing upon what we've learned about the doctrine of Scripture. And man and Christ and salvation and the church and last things, all of these are relevant uh, to the doctrine of God and what the Bible teaches about God. We are, we are sitting under the word, not over it. We are seeking to be faithful to what God reveals about himself. Part of what we do here is listen to other people down through church history, other Christians. The Fellowship of the Saints is also involved in this. Um, There may be a verse, there may be a theme, there may be a line of logic that you may have read a thousand times before. But somebody sitting next to you in the pew reads it, and by the kindness and mercy of God, they see and understand uh, the original intent of the human author and the wider divine intent uh, of the inspiring author, the Holy Spirit. And uh, they're able to share that with you illumination of this inspired text can happen by work of the Holy Spirit, either in your own life or in the life of someone else. And so as we as we weave these things together, as we synthesize them together, we come to an appreciation of the whole, and the whole helps guide us as well. Uh, for example, we can't come up uh, with an understanding of who God is and what he's like that makes a contradiction in the God-man Jesus Christ and undoes the incarnation or undoes the atonement because that would undo our salvation and make the church uh, no reality at all. And it would mean there were no last things because we don't have uh, the Son of God eternal uh, to live with forever joyfully uh, in the new heavens and new earth. So uh, there are internal constraints within the system as we synthesize these things together. Uh, the second uh, point that we've made is that uh, uh, that our understanding of what God is like comes uh, within the context of a whole set of different uh, uh, sub-doctrines or aspects. We are looking at the names and the nature of God right now. We've already looked at his existence and knowability in the past. And we've also looked at the Trinity in the past. And I'll show you today, uh, this evening, why it's actually pretty good that we've already looked at the Trinity. But the names and nature of God, and then the work of this triune God in the decree and creation and providence, all of these things uh, fit together under the broader umbrella of the doctrine of God. It's just like when you're talking about the doctrine of Christ, you have his person and you have his work. The, the, The whole breaks down into two major parts. The person of Christ breaks down into three major parts. His divinity... His humanity, and then his unity, how those two natures fit together uh, in his uh, uh, one divine person. And so uh, the work of Christ also has different aspects. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. In other words... Uh it's not that studying the doctrine of Christ means that all you know are some disparate bits. It's it's that these individual things break down into subparts that all fit together in a great whole. And the same is true in the doctrine of God. Who the triune God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unity and the diversity of the Godhead are all important to this topic. And the names, as God reveals uh what his name is and what his nature is, what he's like. That ends up affecting our understanding of uh, his eternal decree and of his creation and his providence. Um, It's hard, you know, to make much sense of our daily lives sometimes. Um, I had someone in the last 24 hours share a heartbreaking um, prayer request with me. And uh, they were struggling over why this is happening in their life and why they're facing this difficulty. And I talked with them and, and spoke to them from the Word and, and prayed with them. And, and the reality is is that in the midst of, of daily Christian living, it can be hard to understand why uh, difficult things happen. Illness, death, um, uh, loss of job, uh, just a whole host of different things that happen. Not finding the parking place you want. A whole host of things that happen to us and we wonder, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? And at the end of the day, the answer to that riddle, of what is uh, part of our daily living, uh, falling under the umbrella of the, the reality that God is our creator and that God is the sovereign Lord and and that he has uh, all things under him, uh, that is a part of properly understanding how to live tomorrow and the day after. Uh, we were talking just before the class that uh, there's this rumor going around that there's going to be ice in Houston uh, on Friday, uh, Thursday night and Friday, and I just don't believe it. I, can't, I don't believe that's possible. It would be interesting to see. But uh, if it happens, it will be a strange providence of God, and he's the creator, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing, and uh, he is all-wise, and he can do anything he wants to, and that will be just fine. Uh, but I did go and tell each one of my children that drives, please do not take the car out uh, on the ice. I hope, there's ice I hope so. I hope so. Oops. Let's see if I can go back one. I don't know how to. All right. How do we know of God? Well, we know of him from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. But we also know about him as the churches understood him down through church history. That is part of the fellowship of the saints. And that involves knowing something about the early church and the medieval church and the Reformation Church, and also the modern church. And so what we're doing is we are covering uh, the names and nature of God and the works of God in decree, creation, and providence uh, in this course. So that gets uh, uh, some of the newer folks kind of up to speed. Now, we looked last time at the names of God, and there's a Semitic name, which is El, and it means power, and it's a component of personal and place names and the names of the patriarchs, uh, like El ebrahim can uh, uh, can uh, use that name power, and so uh, uh, in connection with the different patriarchs. And uh, most of the time, it's found in the plural Elohim. And therefore, it's not just that God is a power or powerful in a certain way; He's the fullness of power. And uh, there's nothing about power that we can conceive that rightly does not fall. <laughs> as being his or under him. His Jewish name, his personal name is Yahweh or Jehovah. And, and to be blunt, we don't know how to spell it because uh, the vowels are not present in the original Hebrew, only the consonants. And so you get different spellings and slightly different pronunciations. That's not surprising in a word that the, that the uh, uh, mainline uh, Jewish scholars from uh, just before the time of Christ until after, down to this day, refuse to spell, uh, refuse to pronounce. Um, in a Jewish uh, publication, it will say G-D rather than G-O-D, as a, even in the English translation, as if they're uh, uh, to protect themselves from ever pronouncing his name. Uh, this Jewish term, um, uh, which points to his self-existence, that he, he does exist, that he's the being one, that he's inexhaustible, that he is related to what he has shown or revealed himself to be, and that he will be what he uh, will be. In other words, his being is emphasized by his, his Jewish or personal name. So God is not flat in the sense that he doesn't tell us much about himself in, his, in what he self-designates. There's a complexity of his self-designation. And that makes our hearts humble before him. It reminds us we're dealing with one who is above us and more complicated. I, I have a few names. Maybe you do, too. I am Duncan. I am Duncan misspelled. (laughs) I am William. Uh, At one point in my life, I was called Willie by somebody with a Scottish accent. That's a way of joking. Um, I also uh, uh, have some other names in high school that I will not repeat. Maybe you have some names. You know, a really tall person is called Shorty, that kind of thing. Um, my wife has a name that she had uh, in high school, Buckwheat. You'll have to ask her why she was named Buckwheat. Um, so, names tell us something about the person potentially, and that's what God is doing—is giving us a fuller, um, in uh, multicolor detail, uh, names about Himself. Yes, David.
1: When you say that, is almost always in the plural. Is that in the sense of multiple uh, beings, the Trinity-like, or is it just complete power instead of just a
0: power? Well, the uh, the question is, is the Semitic name El, when it occurs in the plural most often, Elohim, <laughs> is that uh, indicating the three persons of the Trinity, or is that indicating all power? And just on the level of the name, remember when it first appears in the Old Testament, uh, uh, A detailed understanding of the Trinity has not yet been revealed. So the language of "L" and the plurality of it is in keeping with the doctrine of the Trinity. It prepares the ground, it prepares the mind of God's people to be more easily able to access an understanding of the Trinity. But it does not definitively teach the Nicene uh, Constantinopolitan doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so so it's not against it it doesn't teach all of it it kind of plows or prepares the ground in a sense it foresh- foreshadows is not a bad term there um, but it's a it's a uh, it's a shadowy outline at first and then as more information is added uh that uh, uh that kind of outline gets uh gets more and more clear uh, you even have it for example in Genesis let us make man in our own image that use of the plural, which almost every Old Testament scholar will just say, "Oh, well, that's just the royal we," you know, it's the royal use of the plural. And um, well, where do you think that came from? God's our creator. You're indicating greatness by using this kind of uh, plurality of language. And um, I always use the illustration of Margaret Thatcher coming out to a little microphone: "We are a grandmother." And the British press was furious because only Elizabeth, only royalty was allowed to say that. Use that grammatical construction. They're very angry with her. All right, so God has revealed himself to us, uh, both in a personal Jewish name and also in a Semitic name. Now, what I want to do tonight is to introduce the question, who is God? How would you answer that question? Who is God?
1: God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and other
2: being, <laughs> goodness, power, and several things that <laughs> Yes, yes.
0: Now, Jamie, I, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you. And actually, you have fallen into my trap.
1: <laughs> That's
0: what is God, which we'll get to in a moment. Who is God?
3: Our Heavenly Father and Creator.
0: All right, now we're moving in the right direction uh, as the first step. He's our Heavenly Father. Who else is God? The Eternal Son of God, the Second Person of the Trinity. Who else is God? The Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit who is the Creator, the Creator Spirit. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons, all share the... The one divine essence and numerical identity, so the one thing which is divine essence each one of them possesses. God is uh reveals himself that he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to answer the question, who is God? It's God, the triune God, as He's revealed Himself. It's not Baal, uh it's not Jupiter, uh it's not uh uh, Mars or some other uh, God in the, in the Greek or Roman panoply. It is the triune God, and uh, it is a very proper thing to refer to the triune God through the incarnate one, the Son. He is, he is the incarnate Son, and he teaches and reveals to us uh, his heavenly Father. That's who God is, and that's why it was helpful to first study the Trinity. Uh, it actually is not the done thing in Western Christianity. In Western uh, Christianity, you always study what is God first. You think about God philosophically and abstractly. And you answer the question, what character or qualities or attributes um, must God have? And uh, they are different Ways of approaching and slicing and dicing that question. But in Eastern Christianity, they have always emphasized the fact that you answer who God is first. There is a fundamental ambiguity to the question, what is God? Because you're kind of talking about God abstractly instead of talking about him personally. How do you feel when someone meets you, if someone met you for the first time and they begin describing you? In um, your attributes or qualities, how, how does that make you feel? They don't speak your name. They don't look in your eye. They don't relate to you personally. They just start saying, "Well, um, you know, he or she's about this tall, and, and and this is their hair color, and and their their face is shaped like this, and their you know how they do in a." Um, how detectives do with a witness who who saw a murder or a crime scene and they want to know, they want you to go and look and they'll put different glasses on the picture and different size and shapes, faces and hair and color. and It's very sophisticated until you get that uh, FBI composite picture that they put out. It's a little impersonal. As a matter of fact, it can get downright offensive as the person begins describing different aspects of us. Uh, in our body or even in our soul. Well, she's got a little bit of a temper. Rather than speaking of you personally. And by name. And in something of the most fundamental relationships that you enjoy in your life. Who your family is. um, What community you live in. Who who your church family is, who your neighbors are. That kind of personal approach is along the lines of who rather than what. And the Eastern Church, I think, is uh, uh, they're on to something there. The difficulty that we have with our Eastern Church uh, mm-hmm. friends and brothers is that uh, um, oftentimes, however, in in trying to figure out how to talk about the Trinity, they start with a father and then try to derive the other two persons. Mm-hmm. And, and inevitably historically has tended towards a hierarchicalism. And so they'll talk about the Father, and then they talk about the Son and the Spirit, but you come away with a strange feeling that the Son and the Spirit are inferior beings to the Father.
1: And are they always depicted in their icons as the Father on top of the triangle? And...
0: Yes, there's a they have a very particular understanding of how the Son and the Spirit on the level of person um, relate to the Father. And it's not just that this is a relationship from eternity past. It's some ongoing, um, eternal in the sense of continual aspect of relation. And that's a later development among Eastern Church Fathers that was not embraced uh, by the early Cappadocian Fathers um, that are appreciated in both the East and the West. It was John of Damascus and some, especially Gregory of Palmas in the Middle Ages who came up with this idea of, of, uh, uh the Father having an internal ontological, what I would call superior relationship to the Son spirit. and Spirit. And that kind of mentality is just not, not really Trinitarian. From a Western standpoint, and it, and it opens people up to kind of a hierarchicalism. So I, I find it a little surprised that that you get the kind of strongman governmental model and uh, tenacious, almost monar- monarchical kind of ideas uh, in the cultures and countries where Eastern uh, theology, Eastern Orthodoxy, tends to dominate. There is a connection between Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church that's very deep. And very profound.
1: Yes. We were in Alaska in the fall of, we visited uh, St. Michael's in, in the And uh, we were told there that had the, uh,
3: the reformers known about the Eastern Orthodox Church and what they believed they would never have had to be Reformation.
0: Well, that's actually a very... That's a very interesting thing you bring up because the reformers did know about the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it was Melanchthon in the Lutheran movement who translated um, the Greek, some of the Greek church doctrinal statements into German. And he did so. Uh, how shall I say it? Well, every interpreter, translator, faces questions about what word to use to translate the document. And every time Melanchthon had to, to translate a key term, he always translated it into the most Lutheran word possible. <laughs> and so in Germany for some period, they uh, had very great excitement about the Eastern church being sort of pre-Lutherans. Not willing to talk about it in the opposite direction. And... Uh, and that went fairly well until uh, some of the rest of the Eastern Orthodox found out about that, and uh, the distinctions were uh, then drawn out in high red, you know, high red color. Um, but there is there is a grain of truth to that actually among ecumenical discussions between the Roman Catholic Church and uh, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Reformed Church, and I'm using these terms with their broadest, the Reformed in the broadest kind of construction where uh, agreements on the doctrine of the Trinity have been able to be derived have been between the Reformed and the Eastern Orthodox. But, of course, it's because in those kinds of uh, World Council of Churches negotiations, who do you send to be on the committee? Well, the Reformed Church sends its most, most Eastern Orthodoxly-minded guy because he's interested in that. And the Eastern Orthodox send their most reformed-minded guy, uh, the guy that I did my PhD studies on, T.F. Torrance. Uh, he was the, a major reformed representative on such commissions, and and they ended up writing three volumes of work and, and made enormous progress in uh, uh, in trying to reconcile some of the differences. Uh, the, the problem was was that the commission came; uh, they ended up moving uh, to a theological idea that none of their churches held to. You know, it was a little
1: compromised. When it comes to the doctrine of God, though, I mean, the Trinity, is there really any major differences between the Reformed position and the Roman church?
2: Uh,
0: you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Because, again, the detail down which, as you begin breaking it down into smaller and smaller parts, <clears throat> even within the Reformed confessions, you have a degree of diversity on this. The Westminster Confession of Faith um let me, I'll, I'll do this Socratically. So if I hold up the Westminster Confession, hmm, gee, I have a copy right here. Here's a copy of the Westminster Confession in larger and shorter catechism, uh, the original British edition. Um, so do you think that the Westminster Confession is a very detailed document or a very minimus document? Well, how would you answer that?
3: It's slightly in between. I mean, it's short enough so you can read it in one or two sittings. So it's not expensive. I mean, obviously, holding it in your hand,
0: it's not volumes long like other systematic theologies. Now, once the shelves are in and we have officially moved into the new office, I could could go and just reach for it at the break and bring it to you. But there is a copy, a Great Commission publication copy, uh, the joint publishing uh, agency that the PCA and the OPC own together. There's a copy of just the text of the Westminster Confession, not the scripture notes, just the text, And uh, it's used and and sold and handed out all around the world, 15 pages. It's not that long. Um, Yeah, it's published in the back of the hymn book. You see, it's all the scripture footnotes that are in smaller print that take up so much of the space. And the catechisms, now, you know, catechisms have a certain rhythm to them, certain almost certain rhyme to them, and and, uh, they take up some space. But uh, the confession itself is not a lengthy document. People just think, though, you know, I can memorize the Apostles' Creed. The Confession of Faith is too big to memorize. It's, it's just this exhaustive kind of document. The treatment of God is very minimalist, is very reserved. And the reason why is because they're trying not to say too much. They don't want to lay too much of a burden of detail. Because where they stop speaking on an issue, then the ministry and the church has uh, freedom in that area uh, to teach and argue and speculate beyond that. Um, so they say just some basic things about God. Um, for example, in the in the Confession of Faith, the chapter on of God and of the Holy Trinity, the second chapter, right after the chapter of Scripture. Notice the order, the Western order, of God and of the Holy Trinity, rather than the reverse. So it's a Western document. And they say there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, Most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. But then, when you drop down to the third section where it talks about the Trinity, this is all it says about the Trinity. The chapter ends at the third section. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. There's no discussion there of numerical identity of essence. Uh, there's no detail there of some of the arguments that came in the post-Nicene period. It's a very, it's a very minimal statement so as to leave the church room to continue prayerfully studying the scriptures. There's no claim that this is a definitive statement, that nobody, that no light would ever break forth from the word later in, in common understanding that would, uh, by the Holy Spirit, capture our hearts that maybe we could say more later. I think much more than that can be said. But as far as pressing it upon people, people's consciences, that's another issue. You don't want to bind someone where they don't feel led by the word.
1: The catechism is very specific in issues. Was is that trying to extend it or define it a little more?
0: Yet, you know, for example, on the nature of God that I just read, you're going to see in a moment that, that the catechism is very similar. Even the larger catechism very similar. Um, there's a similar restraint in the catechisms. Um, one, one way that some of the doctrinal disputes that come up that I, that I like to, to, to think about, and maybe this is the engineer theologian in me, but I like to take out, uh, uh, make a timeline, and uh, put on the timeline the different creedal, and confessional and catechetical statements that the church has written down through the ages. And when uh, folks begin arguing about the Sabbath day, for example, and practical application of the Sabbath, what you should and shouldn't do, rather than just kind of abstractly getting all upset about, well, you're breaking the confession. I, I look there and I say, well, now hold on. The first Helvetic confession didn't say anything about it. The second Helvetic confession does. So what we're doing is we're having a, We're having a developmental discussion or dispute among different brethren that it's really are we going to follow the first Helvetic or the second Helvetic on that issue. So it helps temper our understanding of some things. Um, uh, It is possible with a creedal statement or confession uh, with uh, one word uh, to be so bent out of shape that you uh, can't have fellowship with yourself, much less anybody else. One of the most uh one of the most liberating statements that uh, doctor Douglas Kelly, dear brother and mentor, uh, made to me before I ever met him face to face. We we talked on the phone, it was my tele conversations with him on the phone that led me to Reform Seminary as a student. And uh as we were talking about these things, at one point he said in his great southern accent, he said, Duncan, he said, I, I don't mean to to disappoint you, but I don't agree with my wife on everything. <laughs> Caroline's not right on everything she thinks. <laughs> you see, we, we, um, uh, we can still live together in peace and love and aid and encourage one another in our Christian walk, though we have uh, slightly different understandings of things. There's a practical nature to this that comes in. Sometimes differences are so large that it just becomes impractical to work together. It's like tires on a car. You know, Not that I would ever do this, but if times got tough, you know, you don't actually have to have four of the same size tires. You can put two on the front that are a slightly different size than two on the back, and you can still go 30 miles an hour down the road. But if the differential gets to be too great, um, if you put four different tires on the car that are radically different sizes, then where do you end up? You end up on the ditch on Gaston Road. Do you know, Gaston Road, there are more people on uh, Saturday night who end up in the ditch. I'm trying to understand this cultural phenomenon. There, there's, something, there's some other factor besides, besides cars and night that are involved in that. Lack of light. Yeah, lack of light. That's what it is. Okay. So who is God? The triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what is God is the classic question. That that is what the larger catechism, question number seven, asks. What is God? And if you don't realize that, that who is God is answered by the Trinity, then what is God can be a very disturbing question. What? What is God? That almost sounds in insulting to God. What is God? It's like God's a thing. God's not a thing. He's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who share this one uh, undivided divine essence. What is God? Well, there's the, the fullest um, catechetical answer, of which I know. God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, Almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful. They were having a sale on mosts when this was written in London. Gracious, long suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. That's the most comprehensive catechetical answer uh within the protestant church of which i'm aware but that question what is god is very complicated there are subparts to it god is a spirit is the first subpart of that catechetical answer what does it mean that god is spirit i mean that's actually just a quote from jesus when he's talking with a woman at the well, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean that God is spirit? Is it a Scooby-Doo term? Which means that God is... Woo-woo-woo. You can get that kind of funny, moving, ghosty kind of little outline on the screen? God is spirit. It
1: means there is, there is no material uh, part of it.
0: Now, you see... You have just answered in a hist- profoundly historic Christian way. You have just done something that, that you didn't even realize. You answered the question, not directly but indirectly. You have just told us what God is not. He's not one who possesses a physical body. Uh, the confession gives us a little more detail. He's not, he's without body parts or passions. Okay? Now, that means he doesn't have material substance. He is incorporeal. All right, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. We're just talking about the fact that he's spirit, and so he has no body. Now, this puts us in a radically different quadrant of the universe from our Mormon neighbors. The Mormons believe, quite genuinely believe, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are are three individuals who possess bodies that have now become glorified. And that, that they have a physical nature. And it's why in you know again you always get a difference between official religion and folk religion in any circle. Okay, I don't care whether it's Methodist or Buddhist or Presbyterian or Mormon um uh, no matter what it is, you always get a differential between the official religion and the folk religion. And in uh, Mormon folk religion, if God the Father has a physical body, hmm, mm-hmm. guess where Jesus comes from? Mm-hmm. You see, you get these overtones. did God
1: live on another planet? Too? Or...
0: Well, yes, uh, if, uh, if you are able to obey sufficiently then you can progress and you can become the God of your own planet. It's a a polytheist works religion. Um, And the guy who has the most money and the best suits and the most wives wins. Okay. So God as a spirit is a radically different statement. He has no corporal aspect. Now that doesn't mean... That corporal, that the the physicality is somehow evil. That kind of Greek philosophical notion is not at all a part of Christian thinking. And how how are we absolutely sure of that? There are two ways we're absolutely sure of that.
4: Jesus had a body.
0: (laughs) Yes, the incarnation. Okay? God takes on flesh. God the Son takes on flesh and dwells among us. And John, who was his closest human friend, says, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, you're the Antichrist. So he's pretty serious about it. And there's one other way we know that the body is not evil. Per se, created it
1: and called it very good.
0: Yes, and he created it in his image. And and it was called good and then very good. Because all of creation together was very good. And so body is not bad. Now, I, I have news for you. Um Depending upon the background that you've come to, you may have a little more or a little less trouble getting that uh, into your head and into your heart. Um, uh, my uh, uh, The majority of my family background is Scottish, and that means I have a very difficult time with all this body stuff. We're from a very northern climate. We wrap ourselves in uh, all sorts of things. Uh, when we were in Edinburgh, um, the the kind of average attire for many of the young ladies that went to went to church was black boots of some sort, and I don't mean fashion-style boots, and uh, a long skirt that went all the way down or just almost all the way down, and uh, dressed in black. The more Highland they were, the more black and European they appeared to be dressed. And uh, my wife and I uh, came back to, in the family, we came back to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and we drove up into the parking lot of First Presbyterian Church. And it was uh, November or December, I guess. And uh, uh, all these sweet young things got out of the cars and ran in, uh, in their uh, uh, skirts and frillies, this, that, and the other. And I just looked at my wife and she looked at me and we just said, I said, well, welcome to America. <laughs> welcome home, honey. Um, you know, the, the kind of thing you get used to there is very different than here. And the two weeks a year when it gets warm, Uh, All of life stops, well, the one week. All of life stops, and they all go out to the park, and then you find out uh, why they cover up so much. I mean, they are white as a sheet. I mean, they just look like bleached garments, and uh, it's really kind of difficult to bear. Um, So certain cultural backgrounds and and context, et cetera, have a a really hard time with this whole body thing. Others uh, are a little bit more used to it. Uh, The point is, is that body is not evil per se. Because it's been made in God's image, and it's been united to Him, to His Son in the incarnation. So, body is not bad. Uh, what we do with our bodies can be good or bad. The same thing is true of our of our spirits, because you see, we are not just bodies. Our
1: spirits have no bodies.
0: That's right. The two are together: the corporal and corporal aspect. Or while we're alive, are together. When we die, the two are separated one from from another. Now, describe to me what the human spirit is like. If you were trying to describe the human spirit of someone else, what are the kinds of language that we, you would use? Eternal. Well, hold on to that one. We have to be very careful because that word's ambiguous. Because only God is eternal. If you mean um, both having existed always in the past and before the past and always existing in the future. I think what you mean is, from this point, keeps going. Yes. Yeah. But talk to me about the human spirit. What kind of qualities do human spirits have? Well,
1: it seems to me when Jesus came to the apostles uh, on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Was this their concept of the spirit as a ghost?
0: Yeah, I think they had a little scooby-doo in their minds, too. Yeah. Now, and remember, at that period, they were very fascinated with angels, um, speculatively so. Now, I mean, let me be very clear with you. Um, I'm very fascinated with angels. Um, it may be that I have seen angels in my lifetime. Um, we won't talk about that, because I'm not going to speculate to y'all. But... Um, uh, when I get together with uh, with uh, other theologians, and uh, it's uh, just a little too late at General Assembly, and our feet are propped up, and we're all alone, we talk about a lot of interesting things. Um, but the reality is, is that there is this incorporeal aspect. The two can become separated, and you can describe what the spirit of someone is like. Some some people we talk in terms, for example, of people having different personalities.
1: Kind, kind spirit.
0: Kind spirit. Mean-spirited?
3: What's the difference between the soul and the spirit?
0: Ah, well, this is a point of great uh, controversy in Christian theology down through the cir- down through the years. Remember that we had up uh, the different uh, heads of doctrine, the different major areas of theology, different loci: Scripture, God, Man, or anthropology. That's something we'll study in more uh, in more detail in the fall as we look at anthropology together. In summary. There is a Greek philosophical idea that man is body. Uh, that man is is that there is soul and there is um, body and there is soul, corporal and incorporeal. And then there's another Greek philosophical tradition that teaches that there's body, soul, and spirit. Man is either two parts or man is three parts. And different um, study Bibles. And theological traditions and major teachers have adopted one of those two different ways of describing human nature. And the and the really, but the part you have to be really careful on is not just a study of, of biblical terms, but you also have to pay attention to what they say the soul versus the spirit includes, um, the difference that they draw between those two. But I think if you look at the if you look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, what you find is that the terms soul and spirit are um, almost uniformly used uh, interchangeably. And that the two places where you seem to have a difference being implied are not directly teaching about that aspect of anthropology. They're using it illustratively in an argument. So they could, I think most likely, uh, the inspired apostles are using it from the cultural Malu and philosophical and theological background of the people. Uh, dividing down to the level of the soul and the spirit, kind of language uh, in Hebrews uh, is, is not talking about anthropology. It's talking about the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword. So, good question.
2: Yes.
4: Perhaps I've been confused, but is there an indwelling of the Holy Spirit to believers? Yes. And is that I've always assumed that is the spirit part of you know our being. Yeah. Um, it's not really our spirit; it's the Holy. Spirit. Yes. That that you would say there's three if it's different than the soul. Yes. Is that
0: not In that sense, carefully, carefully defined in that sense, um then I would be a tripartite view, but but of course that's not anthropology. Right. The third part is is theology. It's it's God, it's not man. And and then you run into the, the where you have to settle these questions is very carefully it's in Christology. He's the god-man. So is Jesus missing any aspect of human soul or spirit? The yes, the unassumed is the unhealed was one of the early church principles. And we have to be very careful because we'll undo redemption if, we're, if, we're, if we leave something out. For example, um, uh, the Apollinarian heretics were attempting to leave out the mind of man. They didn't want Jesus to assume a human mind or all all aspects of a human mind, so they uh, classified that with spirit and said it was the Holy Spirit who substituted for the human mind. Well, I got news for you. Guess where all your sins begin. And so he better have assumed a human mind, or else you're in a lot of trouble, uh, and you'll stand uh, condemned on the last day. Uh, my point here about spirit is is that is that uh, it's something that we can relate to. We need to make sure that we don't. Um, uh, treated as utterly foreign to ourselves because we have a spirit aspect as well and even our bodies are made in the image of God we have a hard time discussing details of that theologians have attempted down through the generations to say some things they've spent a lot of time saying what it does not mean but they have tried to say for example we relate to each other face to face we walk upright that that some physical aspect sheds some light on what the nature of the Spirit of God is like. And um, bodies aren't bad per se, but God himself does not possess one. Our bodies image something about him. Okay, It also helps us understand how uh, physical relationships that we have with one another, whether we smile at someone, whether we punch them in the face, uh, whether we're too intimately involved with them, if we're not supposed to be, it, it it just inevitably says something about God. Because our bodies image him. And it's a way of saying... I think that's the ground on which you have to argue about homosexuality. Not just a Bible verse. I, I'm in favor of Bible verses. I think Paul's as blunt as someone can be on that issue. But at the end of the day, the deeper theological um, um, bedrock is that... Marriage is defined and regulated by God because it inevitably says something about him. It's a commentary on him. And so he has chosen to have us illustrate or um, live out or uh, highlight some aspect of the triune nature, the one and the many, by our relating as a plurality and a unity within the bounds of Christian marriage. And he has the right to regulate that so he's not insulted. All right, so the first part here is the ontology. God is a spirit. His metaphysics, his ontology, his being is that he's not corporal. He's incorporeal; He's spirit. And then we say the next thing, which is that in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. Now, there comes that interesting and pesky term, infinite. Now, what does infinite mean? How? Can a finite creature grasp infinity? You know, in, uh, in mathematics, when we're little, we are taught one, two, three, four, five, six, and then we get tired and we just write infinity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what does that symbol mean?
1: Always one more
0: after. <laughs> it means I got tired of writing. <laughs> That's right. As much as you can conceive of. It's a philosophical ideal in many ways. And all of those descriptions I just gave are utterly inadequate to grasp its essence. Because of the creator-creature distinction. We're just little finite creatures. God is infinite. He's the one that's going to have to tell us what that's like. And he will even have to accommodate himself to our weaknesses in doing that.
3: I read a debate on Facebook, actually, about God's infinity recently. Oh. And uh, someone claimed that because infinite means without any bounds, that to say God is infinite is pantheistic because it means there is nothing he is not.
1: Ah,
0: There we have a logical slip on someone's part. Not surprising on Facebook. (laughs) No, seriously. Um, uh, Infinite um, is is a term built from not finite. And finitude is conceived of in terms of spatial limit. And then that physical reality of spatial limit, like this cup, is this size and shape and not bigger. Um, that is then extrapolated or used illustratively in other areas. Um, and so what they've done in the middle of their argument is they've switched meanings of the term on you.
1: Your mom is so smart. I looked at Haley when she was reading it to me and that- they defined infinite incorrectly. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. went with the wrong definition of what they mean. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's, and this is, again, this is one reason why um, my pastoral counsel to you is to be very cautious on philosophical theology. Um, when the seminary in Jackson, uh, I got called into the dean's office and I was first approached about getting my Ph.D. and coming back and teaching. Um, they wanted me to come back and be Doug Kelly's colleague. And Doug taught the systematics. And in the theology department, what they were looking for was somebody to teach philosophical theology. And uh, so I sat there and listened, and um, I wouldn't really ask if I would do this. I was sort of commanded to do this. And uh, Dr. Kelly, um, uh, he's a man of great prayer, and he he would he had a had a gesture that he would make. He would he would always wear a Scottish tartan tie, and he would roll it up and then roll it back down as he talked about something important, whether it be in faculty meetings. I'm surprised he didn't do that while well, he preached. But uh, there he was sitting, and he was rolling it up and rolling it down. He said, now, Duncan, I've been praying about this for six months. It's, an, It's an answer of the Lord to my prayers. It would be a sin for you to delay and say yes.
1: <laughs> he basically
0: said, you don't need to pray about it. I already have. Just say yes. And over dinner that night, uh, uh, we were invited, Shirley and I were invited over to the Kelly's home. And um, You have to understand, Dr. Kelly, in, in, in food, uh, he was raised in eastern North Carolina on a farm. Uh, his family farm had been in the family since before the Revolution. They, I think they were loyalists, actually. Shows you how conservative he was. But uh, um, he was a meat and potatoes kind of guy. And uh, one day, our dean, who was from Philadelphia, uh, ended up getting in an argument with him about food. And uh, Alan Curry looked at him and said, Doug Kelly, when did you first eat pizza? And Doug said, Well, we were meeting potatoes people. When did you first eat pizza? And he said, Well, it wasn't until after I married Caroline that I had pizza. <laughs> he was not a man to try new things. you know. And uh, uh, Dr. Kelly uh, was one who... Uh, quite emphasized that, uh, uh, a biblically derived cons- understanding of God and, and of, uh, every aspect of theology is what we needed, not a philosophically derived one. So, uh, we were invited to the house for fondue that night. I, I didn't know Dr. Kelly knew how to eat fondue. It was great. <laughs> and, uh, one of the questions over dinner was, well, this is great and I feel really honorable you know, I don't really believe in philosophical theology. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to go and study it for four years. And he said, it's not a problem. Just just go study good Scottish theology. Everything will be fine. And uh, it, uh, that uh, prophecy turned out to be correct uh, in the Lord's kindness. So we have to be careful with words like infinite uh, because they can become, um, there can be mission creep in their meaning. People can shift meanings around very subtly. And fool themselves. That's the thing you have to realize. They fool themselves, not just someone else. Now, this is the ontology statement about uh, the nature of God, what he's made up of. He's spirit. Uh, But he's infinite in being glory, blessedness, and perfection. Now, the whole idea of a a ghosty kind of limited spirit in the the, uh, Scooby-Doo kind of fashion This second part of the catechism blows that away. Because whatever kind of spirit he is, it's got to be infinite. Because not only is he infinite, he's also spirit. Not only is he spirit, he's also infinite. These two statements about God modify each other. Both are true about him. We can't exclude one. They both go together. And... and Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But you see... This is an ontological statement, which is a being statement. So he's infinite in his being, therefore he's infinite in his spirit. And he's infinite in his glory, blessedness, and perfection. Hmm, that means he's infinite in everything.
1: But it does not mean that inanimate objects are part of God.
0: Correct. There is no place where God is not, including inside trees. But that doesn't mean God is a tree. He's the Lord and Master and Sovereign over the tree. He called it into being. He placed it exactly where it is. And he is ruler and governor over it. But that doesn't mean he is a tree. So pantheism is not the proper conclusion from infinity. Because that would be to, in effect, deny the created order. There's another kind of sept called panentheism, but you can look that up on there.
1: Well we still have we still have trouble I think in thinking about God in in terms of the way the picture of Mike, Ma, the Michelangelo had up there of God creating man. Yeah. We still kind of see the grand old man of the universe. Yep Yeah.
0: Kind of Santa Clausy looking, really. Yeah. And if it's Eastern Orthodox, he looks like Jesus.
1: <laughs> it's closer than Santa Claus. There you go. <laughs> it's hard to get your mind around an infinite God.
0: It is because you see, we're in the lower circle. We're in the created order. We're finite, and there we. And whenever we start from our finite world and universe, kind of speculating or philosophically speculating about what he's like, it always leads to trouble.
3: Dude, that, that uh,
0: infamous, uh We are.
1: We're just little old things compared to him. Yeah, I, I can remember back in my you know, going back to my ninth grade <laughs> geometry class where you know, they said points and segments and lines and they just went on I mean just sort of I got to think about that just sort of blew mm. me away. Blows you away. You're really, you're,
2: yeah. You yeah.
1: yeah. Get
0: there. They have you draw a parabola. And you go, well, where does it end? Well, it doesn't. It keeps going. Yeah. Now, the third part of the catechism answer is also important. Here we have the perfections of God being listed. Now, I wish I would had the time to put these in some kind of really highly organized charts. So I'd look more like an engineer to you. But we have a three-part breakdown. And, and, and the point here is is that everything listed here, you can pick it up by the most, 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 most. You know, um, he is infinitely sufficient. He is infinite with regard to time. He is infinite with regard to his own stability. He is infinite with regard to um, complexity. He is infinite with regard to location. He is infinite with regard to power. He is infinite with regard to knowledge, wisdom, holiness, justice, merciful or mercy, grace, long-suffering, and uh, uh, also in goodness and truth. He is infinite in all these things. And what that means is, is that somebody who comes along and picks out one of these things that they really like and exalts it to be more important than everything else... And makes everything else about God fade from the scene. That's a problem. Because God is infinite in all of these things. You see, we could also say uh, that he is most loving. And it, would, it was very popular at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, to say, God is love. Brotherly Love. The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. You know, there's a lot of that theology coming back in some evangelical circles today. I was listening to Sandra McCracken coming back from uh, from Bush Airport. I'll have to look forward at the break because we need to take a break. And there is one of her songs that I just love builder um, uh, there's a there's one of her songs that I just love, and it's got a universalist overtoned set of lyrics at one part. And I bet she doesn't even realize it. Um talks about God being close to her, the friend of lovers. She's trying to relate to the culture. And uh, uh, she's speaking not to a Christian audience subset, but to all of mankind, trying to help them see something about God and, and therefore listen to the gospel because of that. And she talks about, uh, in the song, talks about God uh, being the friend of lovers, and uh, uh, carrying us all in our grief. And i got news for you. God does not carry the reprobate in their grief. Their grief is a tool that God uses in order to give them another chance to come to him and to humble their hearts before him and to deepen their guilt before him if they will not come. Uh, we have to be very careful. Even in the finest of evangelical circles, people will slip in this area. And latch on to some attribute of God that is most in keeping with their own culture. Now, I'm not quite sure what, uh, I'm not Tim Keller, so I can't tell you, I can't exegete the culture properly and tell you exactly what the latest wave of this and that is. And of course, what's happening in Manhattan only bears pale resemblance to the really important things like what's happening in Texas.
1: The ten inches of snow. Yeah,
0: that's right. So the, the question with all these, what is it that would maybe appeal to you, maybe be a temptation to you to pull out an exalt and turn into its own idol, make every other attribute of God go away? Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe you want to be wise. Now, wise doesn't mean all-knowing. That's a little different. You can have all knowledge in the universe and not be wise. Wisdom is not only knowing things, but knowing what to do with it. Knowing what to do with that knowledge. I just admire people that are wise. They can give great advice. Yes?
4: When, I wasn't reared in the church, so When we teach catechism, is it evidence that this is insufficient to describe the nature of God? I mean, is that part of the
0: teaching? The what, one of the problems with... Lo- Here, I'm going to uh,
4: get on heretical ground. it's us and our vocabulary. Yes. We cannot describe the name
2: yes. of God.
0: I think that's most clear when you're looking at the original text, which Parliament and the church demanded have the footnotes. Because the biblical text underneath, behind each term, opens it up for us and helps us realize, okay, I'm dipping my toe in an ocean. Of truth, when I strip the footnotes out to put it on a on an overhead slide, it it just looks more compact and and uh, neat and under control than it really is, if I can put it that way. Um, but pick one of these terms. Let's just play with it for a little while. Jim, which one? Which one of these terms or ideas?
2: I I, I like wisdom. All right, wisdom. Yeah.
0: You see, we can take the idea of wisdom and we can focus upon the idea of God being wise. And if we begin to construct and develop our understanding of wisdom, and if he's infinitely wise, and that, that must all be a part of who he is. But in the process, we can do things like do away with justice. There are a lot of people that are very wise That are wise as an individual, but they're not very wise when it comes to society or to sets of people or family. They might be able to be wise about, you know, who you should marry or or what job you should do or
2: wisdom is not comprehensive.
0: Well, it should be. It should be. But at the end of the day, somebody somebody can take a certain abstracted concept of wisdom and lose touch with some of the other qualities. But what you just said is so important if you If you understand what most or all or infinitely wise is, it will include everything else. But
4: at the end of the day, it's still just our understanding of wisdom.
0: Yes, but whatever wisdom truly is, God is all of that to an unlimited extent. And that must also include knowledge of all things and holiness and justice and might. What I'm doing is saying something here about the qualities of an infinite spirit. It's not that over here God is wise and over here he's holy. He's always wise and always holy in every aspect or quadrant of his being. There's a uniformity of spirit. It's not like fingers, toes, and nose that are different things or, or different aspects of my body Manifesting themselves in different places. It's not that he's wise sometimes and that he's holy other times. He's always all-wise and all-holy in everything he does and in everything he is. And so in the in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, when the um, uh, fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man movement was just sweeping the world um, it was P.T. Forsyth, a Scottish theologian, who came back and said, God is love, but love is not
1: God. What is the definition of holy?
0: And God's love is also a holy love. You can't separate those two. Um, the the basic concept of holiness is a separation from that which is evil. How can you be most Um, You can be holy, both ethically and also ontologically or metaphysically. Um, uh, You can be absolutely perfect, but you can also be absolutely high and above us. And the term holy includes both of those.
2: Um,
0: Both a relational uh, with regard to... um, uh, guilt or innocence but also relational with regard to level of being or aspect of being
1: I just don't see how the most I see how it fits with every other adjective but not holy because holy has no
0: You think you either are holy or you're not holy. You think you're holy yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think I think unique. You're about God. most unique, yes. But yeah. holy, holy, holy beyond our beyond Ooh, anything that's a good argument. He is holy. I like... If we sing it,
0: if we sing it for Gladys, it will help.
1: Yeah.
0: Holy, holy, <laughs> holy. It's tripartite. See, that's open structure to the Trinity. Doesn't doesn't teach you everything about the Trinity, but boy, it sure gets you warmed up for it once God reveals it, doesn't it?
1: Yes.
3: I think we can only say most holy because we have to talk about God the way He talks about Himself. And he does use that kind of terminology. You know, we see holy,
0: holy. I like that. That's a good argument. And the, have you the, been taken? Have you been listening to theology podcasts or something?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, same Facebook discussion.
1: <laughs>
0: there you go. Oh, very good. Very good. Now,
1: and God's presence in the tabernacle was in the most holy place.
0: Yeah, you not only have the you you know you got the holy of holies. You know, it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's interesting. Death, yeah. That's true. That's, well,
1: yeah, in, holy, 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 holy.
0: in the temple, in the technical, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it like the term perfect
3: that it means that it's, it's happening it before and beyond? and
0: Above all that you can conceive in that, yeah. 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 These are all, this. Is, what we're bumping into is the difficulty of finite creatures talking about the infinite. Isn't it fun?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Although I do think we also have to believe we also have to remember that in this Westminster wording, "most" is the 17th century British "most," which could have a sense of, you know, extremely or yes. very or yes. to a to a, to a particularly large extent.
0: A, a Shakespearean uh, yes. aspect. Now, let me I, let me Ill, let me give you an, a, a common illustration. Gladys, do you want your husband to say? You're pretty, or do you want him to say you're really pretty? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: let's let's take a break and then we'll come back together. Okay.
4: Well,
1: something
0: I something I'd like to ask Arthur John. I'm, I'm embarrassing Arthur John. I pressed him to come tonight, and we we got asked a question about Eastern Orthodoxy and the Reformed Faith, and it's not just a modern issue. It's actually a a long-standing one going back to the Reformation. There's one historic Eastern Orthodox figure uh, who wrote a confession of faith that was published in Geneva that's thoroughgoingly Calvinistic. And uh, the guy got in a little trouble for it back home. Uh, in his Eastern Orthodox circle. So tell us who this is.
3: Okay, uh, this is the ecumenical patriarch of uh, Constantinople back in the 17th century, the early 17th century. His name was Sicil Lucaris. And anyway, he apparently uh, had had correspondence with reformers inside uh, Geneva. He uh, had correspondence with, correspondence with Calvin's successor and uh, had extensive correspondence. Beza, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, also correspondence with... Uh, Dutch reformers as well. And so he has this large collection of letters and they began to discuss all these theological topics. And he began to send all of his priests to go be trained inside Geneva. And um, this led to a new urge to reform the entire Orthodox Church along Calvinistic lines. And he created the Eastern Confession of the Christian Faith, which is not... No Calvinist would like it because it still goes for icons and things like that. But it does go for predestination, and it is clearly Calvinistic. And uh, 20 years after his death, they uh, anathematized him in a uh, synod, and they quickly suppressed that. And now they get really annoyed whenever you mention his name, because he's really important, unfortunately. But
0: this kind of thing continues. For example, I was uh, asked to go teach. Uh, Presbyterian Church uh, asked me uh, up in uh, North Carolina, uh, asked me to go teach in Romania in Bucharest, Romania, at a, um, uh, at a college, a Christian college, founded by a Korean missionary. And um, I got there uh, to teach Christology, and uh, the, the room was uh, maybe three times larger than this. And the layout of the room was, there were seats on this side, an aisle, and seats on that side. And I walked in. And everybody on this side was dressed in what I would call kind of normal European style. And everyone on this side was dressed in black in some sort of religious uniform. And they all had fairly extensive beards. And these two guys were not talking to each other. And um turns out that the brethren on this side were all Baptist pastors. <laughs> And the ones on this side were all um, Eastern Orthodox priests. And, uh, and they had come to study Christology. And as we went through the person of Christ, uh, we uh, got to the different events of his life. I got to the resurrection and emphasized that the resurrection was bodily. It was a physical resurrection. And there was all this, all this buzz that started on this side of the room. And the oldest man among them said, through a translator, excuse me, sir, did you say a bodily resurrection? And I said, yes, the tomb was empty. And they all buzzed with each other. And, he, and then he said, we've never heard this. Now, in their Eastern Orthodox system, there's a level in which that was understandable because they're so much into mysticism uh and incense and all of that that basic facts of the christian faith from the bible get kind of overlooked um, over dinner one night i asked one of the romanian students tell me what uh you know what's your conception of heaven and he thought about it for a while and he said well our cultural conception of heaven is that you die and you're on a cl- on a cloud and your grandmother feeds you soup
1: <laughs>
0: That's kind of our conception of heaven. Again, it's not new heavens and new earth <laughs> So while <I'm> soup. <laughs> there you go while you're feeding soup. So, so the point here is is that, is that there's been a lot of interaction between the Eastern Orthodox and the Reform down through the centuries in both different directions and and we bump into the most interesting of things as we interact with
2: them. Um, yes, just slightly. Off-topic, perhaps. Um, You brought up the concept of predestination or. Yes. Um, That was in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Yes. What was the view of church fathers in the first century? Was that even an issue? We, and,
0: well, your last part of the question is absolutely important, which is, was it even an issue? Um. You don't find people writing about things that were not controversies on one level or another. For example, even in the Bible, even in the New Testament, even in the book of First Corinthians, for example, you can take that book and outline that book and figure out what the sheet of questions that they sent to Paul from Corinth were. We're having trouble with the Lord's Supper. We're having trouble with spiritual gifts. We're having trouble, particularly with speaking in tongues. We're having trouble with marriage. We're having trouble with the resurrection. And you can just see Him going through and answering their practical questions in the pew. And those questions in the pew didn't arise in a vacuum. They all come because of different cultural, philosophical, religious pressures, you know, coming from uh, Greek um, polytheism or coming from uh, Roman government or coming from uh, some aspect of Greek economy or culture or some pressure from Judaism or some other religion. So you can trace the background of those. And uh, other than those things, you have kind of passing comments about other, other topics, but not clear, direct formulations. Now, If the Apostle Paul hadn't been inspired, then those passing things he makes reference to wouldn't necessarily be important or true. But since he is inspired, they are, and they're in keeping with the rest of Scripture. When we get to uninspired authors in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, there you have to be very careful because they're addressing certain issues head on, like the existence of God, like the nature of God, like... (laughs) The Son in his relationship to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit—is he personal or is he uh, just some abstract force? So they end up building up an understanding of the Trinity, but very early on they're not dealing with the topic of, of predestination. They may quote texts in the Bible that uh, uh, that we would use in our arguments for it, but they're not. There's, there's, to my knowledge, in the in the first century, for example, you don't have a have a a church or a uh, an elder or a bishop writing and giving some direct instruction on predestination.
2: Along with predestination is uh, the the, the, uh, the theological concept of, of election. Yes. And, and the call, and elect, and so as opposed to Arminius in his, in his uh, presentation in, in the 15th century, I guess it was mm-hmm. the 14th, 15th. Uh, where did that come from? I mean, would, did those did, did those philosophies or theories uh, exist back in the first, second, third century?
0: Uh, the question is: Let me put the question very technically. Was Arminius's understanding of election something that existed in the, even believe in in the early it? church? Well, he would. The word is a biblical word, so he had some conception oh, of what that meant. Okay. His doctrine of election would that have existed in earlier centuries and the answer is no it would not have existed in earlier Did centuries
2: would anybody else before him have that that, that doctrine you would have doctrinal belief?
0: well you would have people citing passages that would use the word call or use the word even election because they're biblical words but whether they have an organized theology of that or or not is is something that that you would you would have Great burden arguing.
2: Well, where I was headed was this, was the the whole philosophy of it's my choice. It's all me. I did it. God Uh didn't do it. God didn't call me. God didn't elect me. I did it on my own. That's what I have Baptist friends who tell me.
0: Yeah, that's a, how shall I say it technically? That's a very Western kind of posture and statement. It's a very democratic.
2: Where did this controversy Uh first arise? Was it with Arminius or was it before him? Did it predate him?
0: Yeah, I mean, you do have some of the medievals making statements on this because what they're trying to do is develop a comprehensive theology. But I'm trying to think back about who had a well-developed doctrine of election or predestination. And I'm, I'm, left, I'm, I'm left with...
4: Can I add just one?
0: Sure, yeah. So
1: yeah.
4: So we build our... And I'm kind of going to paraphrase the Bible. But we build our understanding of what we know. And the uh-huh.
1: first century
4: Christians knew the Jewish people were elect. And there was a controversy. Does this Gentile have to be a Jew to be a Christian?
0: Right, right. So
4: that is a debate on election. In my view, that's a that's a, a primitive debate on election. But
0: it's but it's not debating the major issues in Arminius' theology.
4: Because we're yeah. not there yet. Right. So the question was, was there any concept? And, and their, their concept was, the elect are the Jews. We are the elect.
0: Yeah, I think I think systematically the way I would put it is, is that there were questions under the doctrine of the church that had implications for the doctrine of God. But the degree to which people worked those out is another question. Would
2: you say that, that Calvinism... Simply
0: parody? Be the door?
1: Yeah,
2: sorry. No. no. No? No. That's what I've had some friends try to tell. Oh, he, he, he only read Augustine and that's what he's... That, he's that's. No, he's, the I range
0: think. of Calvin's reading in the Fathers is is well documented now. Um uh he was he was not playing on a one note guitar okay i mean i have read his i've read some of his letters where he is quoting and interacting with Hilary, Hilary of portier with the cappadocian fathers uh with Irena- iron S is one of his favorite authors from the 2nd century i mean it's um, uh that that is a very um, a very old narrow line of attack on calvinism and on Calvin's uh, intellect that that would be laughed out of academic circles.
1: Now,
2: yes.
5: So on on that topic, so basically what you're saying is throughout Scripture, this this idea of predestination and election that is spoken about, was this understood normal part of the doctrine, you know, obviously starting with the Jews, and then once the, the church went through the period where they they started talking about, you know, the Gentiles and are they are they, you know, God's children as well, are they elected as well on this on the same level and their understanding grew. So basically throughout the totality of scripture, it's a pretty well understood concept. And so then there was a period of time after where people started thinking uh they're coming up with new concepts and new ideas and trying to rethink what was already understood, and that's where we get these other sort of, well, this is not really what it's saying; it's really saying this, and that's why you kind of there was this period where it wasn't really talked about, and it was just understood, and then it was there were these people that started coming up saying, oh, well, this is my view on what it's really saying, and so it's kind of a new idea compared to what we see in Scripture.
0: Yes, you have to keep two things straight. One is is what the scripture teaches, what the intent of the divine author was on a topic. And that is there, and it's objective, and it's real. The individual various human authors that are carried along by the Holy Spirit, their text may say more or less about that topic depending upon uh the questions they were addressing and how the Holy Spirit carried them along, and their own personal understanding may be more or less developed, given where they are. For example, um, Moses's understanding of this issue may not be as highly developed as David's, which would not be as highly developed as as Paul's. And so, there's even um, growth internally in the in the text itself. But underlying it all is the one divine human, uh, one divine. Um, author uh who carries along the human authors and so it's it's his full understanding and intent that we then down through the ages in church history try to come to a greater and a closer understanding of and the different cultural philosophical historical contexts in which we talk about God in which we do theology they make it more likely that we come closer or less likely that we come closer, depending upon the topic. And when you're in a first century or in second century context where people are trying to feed you to the lions and crucify you, not so that you can die a slow death, but so that they then can um, put, uh, um, uh, put oil on you and burn you up and use, use you as a light post at night. Uh, to be able to see the road. In that kind of context, you don't tend to have as many theoretical discussions about predestination. <laughs> it's, it's di- there are different things on people's minds. Or, when you're interacting with a rising Gnostic heresy within the church, what you're doing is you're talking about the existence of God and the basic nature of God. And then the- and then when you've got all kind of Trinitarian heretics, you are colliding over whether the father and the son are of the same substance or only similar substance. And does he really have a a divine will and a human will or just a human will? And uh, and so then it's later that you get into soteriological discussions that end up focusing that question in the way that uh, Arminius then can give his answer. Uh, you, You oftentimes have academics address the question, did Calvin believe in predestination? And what they mean by that, I mean, Calvin wrote, Attract on predestination. <laughs> Preach sermons on predestination. Of course, he believed in predestination. But what they mean by that is, is did Calvin have a later Calvinistic understanding of predestination uh, during the time of his ministry in Geneva? And um, the reason why academics love questions like that is you get to write a PhD dissertation arguing different, identifying and arguing different strands of thought and how they relate to one another. Um, The easier example, the less emotional example for me to use is is on the doctrine of adoption in in soteriology, salvation. Um, Adoption, regeneration, effectual calling, even the terms justification and sanctification. Earlier in Calvin's life, you find those terms being used in various ways at various times. Later in his life, there comes to be more clear definition of justification and sanctification. But it's not until the generation afterwards where you get a fuller and deeper appreciation of adoption, for example. Now, that's not to say Calvin doesn't have anything about adoption, but it's not as fully developed as, uh, for example, in Beza's period. So um, there's an organic development of the church's understanding of different things, even though all of it that's true was always in the Bible all along. Yeah.
5: Okay, so, yeah, I and I think
0: that's what you were saying.
5: Yeah, it was there the whole time. That's right. This, the concept of it is not something that's new. So when when people, when they look at it and they're trying to understand it. It's not two new ideas that were come up by people who were way after the Bible was written who are commentating on what they saw and coming up with a theory, but it's there's an underlying principle, there's a doctrine that has been there the whole time that yes. was held throughout all of the thousands of years.
0: If if I can if I can put it in most dramatic fashion, God believes in predestination. <laughs> He has a doctrine. He has a doctrine of predestination. And all we're trying to do is to think his thoughts after him and to summarize that or some aspects of it. And uh, sometimes we uh, it's like playing darts. Sometimes you get closer to the center than other times.
4: It's always good to have a lot of patience and grace when you're talking to your friends
0: about it. Oh yes, you know, I have, uh, I have students all the time. They get on a hair, on a tear and a hair. They got some idea and they think it's the solution to all the world and the whole church will be fixed. If they just, if everybody understood what I understood, everything will be fine. And what I try to tell them in a very nice way is, thank you so much for that idea. Would you please write that down? And in about 150 years, I'll come back and look at it and then we'll see whether it's uh valuable enough for the church to give it a lot of thought to. Um, we have to keep our own development of ideas in their proper Christian historic mm-hmm. um, uh perspective.
2: You yeah. valued that person. <laughs> oh
0: I did. I know it's very much against the modern culture, but it's like uh
3: friend, Josiah who went back and found the ancient writings and suddenly People, yeah,
0: yeah, and what they understood from those had always been there, um, but because of their cultural, historical, and providential context, um, they lived through darkness of a famine of the word, so that we might understand why it's important for us to read our Bibles for our blessing and benefit. Y'all been very patient tonight, and I apologize. I am, I'm not nearly. As witty or as intelligent as uh, Bob, as Bob Stacy, and uh, appreciate your patience. Uh, Please tell him I gave you candy. There's some. uh, There's some there on the uh, kitchen on the way out. That's right.
2: The fact that nowadays teachers not only have to be good at teaching, they also have to be very entertaining to keep the attention of their students. That's right. We live in a
0: TV generation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies, Uh, and we ask that as we stick our toe in your infinity, uh, that you may help us to have an appreciation uh, for what you have done in adding human nature to your Son personally, that the infinite came as the finite one. It blows our minds, but we thank you for him. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name.
2: Amen. Amen.